Good morning. Good morning, FCF, as well as good morning, visitors. We have a lot here. To, we have a whole gaggle of visitors over here visiting us from a church down in the valley. Glad you guys are joining us today. All right. Uh, my name is Scott Porter. I serve as one of the uh, five uh, pastor elders here at this church, uh, filling in for Dave, who is out of town. It's my joy and privilege uh, to do so. We're going to be looking at the book of Second Peter this morning, so I'd encourage you to make your way to that New Testament epistle. I do have just a couple announcements in case you came in uh, late. First off is that Wednesday night teaching time, uh, Dave leads that time, that will resume on March 1st. So not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that, uh, right here at 615. And I know that Sunday school is happening as we speak, but I just wanted to put that in front of you that uh, during second service, Bo and Jeff are teaching a class on marriage in the fireside room. So I'd encourage you to, uh, there's, there, there's room here, first service, if you wanted to change your schedule to, to where you could uh, make yourself available to go to that. I think you would be blessed, and I'm really thankful that those brothers are teaching through that. So again, we're going to be looking at Second uh, Peter, verses 1 through 11, and I've titled uh, today's message, The Gospel Made Visible. I do have a plan. I, I, I fill the pulpit roughly two, three times a year. So my goal would be to work through the, the book of Second Peter. It might take a year and a half to do so, three chapters. I'm going to try and limit it to about six sermons. So uh, those will be made available on our website if you wanted to uh, follow up and catch up. Next time I'll be teaching would be in April from that. So let me um, put God's word before us and we will pray and then look to his word. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 1 it says, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, indeed. Uh, Would you bow your heads and hearts? We'll just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we pray, I pray on behalf of um, those seated in front of me, we ask that the Holy Spirit may open our hearts to receive your word this morning. We ask that you may allow us to put off distractions that would interfere with that. We also pray that you may convict hearts where appropriate. Use your word is what we ask. Use your word to remind us of the glories of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And Lord, to anyone that is here among us this morning who does not know you, I pray that the Spirit may open hearts to see Jesus, to recognize sin, to repent. And I pray that today may be the day of salvation for some here today. Be with my words. I pray that I do not, I pray that you guard me from saying anything that would be unhelpful and more importantly from anything that would be untrue. Govern this time for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, today's message will consist of four points. My first point is just going to be a brief introduction to Second Peter. Uh, this is this will just serve to to give us a, see what the book as a whole is about. I'm not really going to spend too much time in point number one, but it will help us to better understand um, Peter's intentions with this letter. Point number two will be our calling and election results in our salvation. That'll be point uh, verse three and four. Point three will be our salvation results in godly living. That'll be verses five through seven. And then our final point will be our godly living results in a corporate display of the gospel. So at the beginning of our time here, I would like to just put a uh, uh, thesis sentence, if you will, or a key theme that I'd love for to have in our hearts and minds this morning, which is this. Our calling and election should result in godly living, resulting in an observable testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'll say that again. Our calling and our election should result in godly living, resulting in an observable testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with our first point, introduction to 2 Peter, uh, of all the New Testament books, that uh, made it into the final canon of Scripture. Second Peter was the slowest to make the cut, slower than Revelation even. Scholars have disagreed over whether it was actually Peter who wrote Second Peter. Um, they point to the different linguistic style between First Peter and, and Second Peter. It seems to me, though, that those differences could just be explained that These are two different letters being written to address two different situations. 
I quickly learned that I was over my pay grade in trying to figure out and get to the bottom of uh, the authorship of Second Peter. So I'm going to be operating uh, on what my eyes see. I open my Bible, I look at the top of this page, and it says Second Peter. So I'm going to be operating on the fact that Peter wrote this, as well as the fact that verse 1 says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, I also am trusting my early church fathers who wrestled extensively over this letter's authenticity. I'm also trusting that every word of this epistle is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ has always been under attack. It's under attack today. It was under attack when this letter was penned after the crucifixion of Christ. The book of Second Peter was written in large measure to combat false teachers. False teachers of the day. There's a preoccupation in chapters 2 and 3 which served to uh, sound an alarm bell to the original recipients and to us to be on guard for teaching that runs contrary to the teaching they have already received. Now it could be that Peter had in mind the false teaching of Gnosticism. You've heard that word before. That was prevalent in the early centuries after Christ's resurrection and the inroads of that heresy were already um, in place when Peter wrote this, this letter. Gnosticism taught, among other things, that there was, uh, a, quote, special knowledge in regard to knowing about God and that special knowledge was, was limited to a, a certain select group was rather exclusive in that manner. And we see Peter uh, use this word knowledge or some form of it at least 14 times in three short chapters, eight of which, or five of which actually come in our first eight verses. So it's as if Peter from the onset is, is wanting to remind his readers uh, that there is a place where God has revealed the knowledge about himself that leads to salvation And such understanding is found in the pages of Holy Scripture. So Peter, in in this opening greeting, scripturally disregards the notion that there are those Christians who exist in a a special uh, elite group because of their specially acquired knowledge by using the phrase that he greets them with, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours in verse 1, it's as if to remind them that, that this letter is written from one sinner saved by grace to a, another group of sinners that are saved by the same grace. And we also see in this opening greeting a desire for them to grow in the truth by saying in verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And he actually concludes this epistle with a very similar uh, plea for their growth. Peter furthermore reminds us that God is not only the object of saving knowledge, but he's also the the giver of that knowledge, as we see in verse 3. And looking ahead uh, to chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, which Lord willing we'll look at in April, we see Peter elevating scripture 
to a level that has in itself the highest ultimate authority as being the very word of God himself. And therefore God in his word being the source of saving knowledge. And also as is true with most false, well, much false teaching would be the identity of Jesus Christ often uh, finds itself under attack, especially the deity of Christ that teaches that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man, and therefore he is God in human flesh. Peter affirms the claims made elsewhere in the New Testament of Jesus being one with the Father by linking God the Father and God the Son not once, but twice in these two short verses. So in these two opening verses, we see Peter setting the stage, if you will, for a letter that contains very stern warnings toward false teaching and toward those who wander from the revealed truth of Scripture to follow heresy. Peter is uh, drawing our attention to the results of God giving us the knowledge that freely that he freely gives about himself, namely grace and peace. And we see Peter's desire for our growth of that saving knowledge in our lives. So with that, as, a, as kind of a backdrop, let's just um, move to point two, which would be our calling and our election results in our salvation. And that would be verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read that again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Peter, Peter doesn't go into depth in Second Peter on the nuances of the doctrine of election. He addresses his readers in such a way that he's merely uh, reminding them of the truths of which they're already aware. In describing what has been given to them by God, he puts a, a, this catch-all term of all things, and all things would surely include the following, uh, their faith in Jesus. It would include the biblical knowledge and the ability to apply it to their lives. All things would also include the, the truth that they are recipients of God's promises. It would include the fact that salvation from the just wrath of God has been granted to them that that uh, just wrath of God that is reserved for those who reject Jesus. And that term, all things, would also surely include the eternal security that says they can't lose their salvation because God keeps and God preserves that which he freely gives. That's John chapter 6, John chapter 10. So Peter wants us to know and to remember that these are all given to us as gifts by God himself. So he's not taking the time to develop these teachings because he knows that they know them. 
This is just a reminder to them that they are called by God. Now, it would serve us well uh, if you are here today and you are a Christian. That is an act of regeneration, an act of regeneration by God through the working of the Holy Spirit and remembering that God is responsible for our salvation. That leaves no room for our human pride. It leaves no room for us to take credit for our salvation. Peter doesn't allow us to take any credit for that which God has done. Rather, by remembering our calling and election, we're to humbly give God the glory that he deserves for that which he has freely given us in Christ. So he's not only reminding them uh, of a future awaited promise of eternal life, although he is, But when he uses that phrase, life and godliness, in verse 3, he's also drawn their attention to the implications that their calling and election have now on how they live their lives. But more on that in our third point. So Peter is also reminding his readers of the means that God has called them when he says in verse 3, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So there's, there's a sense that God has a desire, or there's a sense that God works in the life of a believer with the aim of reaching our hearts. God desires to reach our hearts. And the way he reaches our hearts is through the avenue of our heads. Our hearts, the Bible describes our Naturally, desperately wicked, rebellious toward God. In other words, the Spirit acts upon the knowledge of God, our head, by illuminating the teaching that is found in the Scriptures to open the eyes of our hearts to the glory and excellence that's found in Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Peter tells us that through faith in Jesus, that faith given to us as a gift by God, there results a transfer, if you will, a transfer of how God sees us. Colossians uh, 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us this. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. There has literally been a change in God's eyes, regarding how he sees us for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Prior to God working in the heart of an unbeliever, we were targets of God's wrath, just targets of God's just wrath, because of our sinful rebellion. But when he imparts new life by his Spirit, there's a heavenly change that takes place. And it's not like he just now like tolerates us. That's not how it is. He now considers us one of his adopted children. And we see in verse 4 that phrase that we have become partakers in his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. A great exchange takes place. 
when God illuminates the heart to recognize their sin and recognize their need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. When God causes someone to place their trust in Jesus, that Christian's guilt is placed on Christ, where God no longer sees that person as guilty. And what's better is that in this, involved in this imputation is that now God now sees the guilty sinner, he sees the righteousness of Christ placed on that guilty sinner. He doesn't see the guilty sin, he sees Christ's righteousness on the person who places their faith in Jesus. That's good news. So this word partaker, it's a word, it's a wonderful word because it reminds us that the, the plan of God has always been, from before time began, to call a people out, out of darkness, into his family as heirs. That word partakers invokes that of being heirs with Christ. So we're no longer enemies of God because of our sin. Rather, God considers us partakers of the inheritance. Now, this relationship that was broken because of our sin has been restored to where we have fellowship with God again through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. God tells us uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So bound up in the glory and excellence that are connected to our salvation is the fact that those who are called are spared from God's judgment. And spared from being a target of God's wrath. And furthermore, he now considers us as fellow partakers with him as co-heirs with Christ, through Christ. And as we've seen recently from Dave's uh, teaching from John 17, that salvation is secure. That salvation is rock solid. And it's secure because God the Father has given believers to God the Son as an eternal gift. But I I want us to go beyond thinking that our salvation only has a future aspect to it. And I want us to consider how our calling and election plays out in our lives now, here and now. So that brings us to point three, which is this. Our salvation results in godly living. And that would be um, verses five through seven, where Peter writes this. For this very reason, everything that he binds up with our calling and election, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with with love. Okay, so in light of the truths that are bound up in the gift given to us of our salvation through faith in Jesus, 
we are now to live out our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit accordingly. So here we have a list in verses 5, 6, and 7. And lists can be dangerous because we just want to look at a list and say, just show me the list. Show me the list. Tell me how I'm to live. We are legalists by default. Okay, maybe you're not. I tend to be. Now, to be clear, Peter just told us that our salvation is ours because of a divine act done by God. So he's not contradicting himself here by now saying that we need to somehow complete our salvation through good deeds. It's not what he's teaching. Rather, he's teaching us that in light of our salvation, we are also called to live out our lives accordingly. Okay, so our justification is a result of God working in our hearts to acknowledge our sin and repent and trust in Jesus. And that happens in a moment. Now our sanctification, on the other hand, that's a process, the process of being conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ. Now rest assured, God is active in this process, but it is this process of lifelong growth that God expects us to work out as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 and, 12, 12 and 13, where Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So our ongoing growth in the Christian life, it's labor. It's labor, and it's a labor that God expects us to to take up and to take seriously. But in that beautiful relationship, the Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, He doesn't leave us alone in this long-term growth project because the Holy Spirit and the word that the Holy Spirit inspired served to guide and empower us in our lifelong call to grow in godliness. So as we read this list of imperatives in verse 5 through 7, uh, I encourage us to see it as a guide as to how to live our lives in light of our secure salvation. We need to see these as a whole, this list as a whole, but the whole is composed of the sum of its parts. So uh, I just want to look briefly at each of these elements of this list that Peter gives us. And I want you to notice how he he starts kind of big and, and vague and he narrows it down to specific application as he goes down. Uh, I didn't do anything special or fancy with this list. I, I looked up the Greek words and I looked up the English definition of the Greek words that Peter used. It's not rocket science. Um, But I do want you to, what I don't want us to see is this list in such a way that we say, oh, well, once I get a a good handle on um, virtue, then I can start to shift my attention to to gaining knowledge. And it's a bummer that I'm such a slow learner in gaining knowledge because it's going to be probably the fall of 25 before I can start working on self-control. It's it's not how this list goes, okay? Okay. 
these are uh, a list as a whole as to those elements of godly, virtuous living that God wants to see in our lives. So let's start by virtue. In verse 5, the NASB, New American Standard, translates this as moral excellence. It has uh, connected to it a sense of valor. That is, a valor that is appropriate to the intrinsic greatness or glory of that which is to be praised. In other words, to the degree that we recognize and value God for who he is as revealed in Scripture should be the degree to which we should strive after a life that displays virtue or moral excellence. Remembering that we were part of God's elect. And that should motivate us to live a life that honors he who called us. Okay, next in our list is knowledge in verse 6. So this is that God-granted understanding of who he is as revealed in the Bible. God receives more glory as his character is revealed to his children and when his children strive to live a life that reflects his character to the watching world. The more we strive to become active listeners week in and week out as we sit under the teaching of of the word and the more we labor to know him through our private uh, study of the word, private devotions, the more it should fuel how we live. Virtue points more to our desire to live a life honorable to him and knowledge points to that, that desire to pursue to know him more. And both virtue and knowledge are going to rise and fall according to how much we value God for who he has revealed himself to be. Okay, next comes self-control. Now this brings our minds back to Galatians chapter 5, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, another list. All of the fruit of the Spirit as a whole, again, all of which those uh, should be seen as evidence of the Holy Spirit in, in, at work in the life of a believer. Again, if any aspect of our life resembles how God would have us live, that is evidence that the Spirit is at work within us. Self-control encompasses infusing self-discipline into all aspects of our lives to the end of bringing honor and glory to the God who called us. Okay, virtue, knowledge, self-control. Next comes steadfastness. New American Standard translates this as perseverance. This has the idea of a cheerful endurance. This involves waiting. But not waiting in such a way that we, that we uh, you know, sit back and coast and wait for change and growth to happen. Rather, we adopt a long-term, a long-game mentality that says, you know what, my sanctification is going to be hard at times, but I'm committed to laboring toward godly living for the long haul. Steadfastness inevitably will require perseverance in in the face of uh, suffering and persecution. We live in a fallen world. 
And God reserves the right to use trials and sufferings to prune us, prune, prune the vine, if you will, of us as Christians to be better suited to advance his kingdom. But by remembering our calling and remembering our election with perseverance, we're to live out our lives of virtue, knowing that he is ultimately worthy of the sacrifice. Okay, godliness in verse 7. Now this is where the list kind of narrows down and it shifts from uh, merely our relationship uh, with God to the extension of that as it pertains to our relationship with others. Godliness involves showing reverence for God as a loving father as well as the tangible results which, uh, which show themselves in how we respect others as fellow called and elect children of God. It introduces not only a vertical relationship between the believer and God, but it also brings in the, the horizontal component, component of making us aware of how we interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, godliness, brotherly affection. This is that uh, phileo love. NASB uh, translates this as brotherly kindness. Now this is a stronger word that incorporates the two great commandments that Jesus uh, teaches of in Matthew chapter 22 when he was asked what is the greatest of the commandment. You remember Jesus' response. He said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus follows it up and says, and the second is like this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that term brotherly affection, it should draw our attention to asking ourselves the question, how am I doing? How am I doing in my brotherly affection relationship with other blood-bought saints? All the while keeping in mind that the person, person sitting next to you is just as much a sinner as you, saved by the same grace as you. It's just easy to forget sometimes. And then Peter finishes out his list with love. Now this is a stronger word still. King James translates this as charity. This is that strong word for love, agape, which exceeds even that of brotherly love or brotherly affection and pushes it further to involve action, action to display that love on someone else's behalf. This is love that shows itself in a life characterized by self-sacrificial action towards someone else in an effort to meet the needs of that other person. It's like John uses this word in John 3.16 to describe the, the degree to which God loved us, loves us, by God the Father being willing to send God the Son to be crucified in order to to buy us back or to redeem us, buy us back from the darkness of sin into a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. It's this word love that really defines how we ought to live. 
how we should live out our Christian lives in light of our calling and election. So taken as a whole, this list, list of Christian virtues in regard to godly living should be seen as that which flows out of our salvation. The salvation that was given to us as uh, believers when God opened our eyes to the knowledge of the gravity of our sins and to the glory of God as displayed in his free gift that is found in Jesus. Which brings us to our fourth and uh, final point this morning, which is this. Godly living results in a corporate display of the gospel. And that's verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, which reads this. Peter says, for if these qualities, okay, everything he just laid out in the list of godly virtues, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so working backward from what's implied working backwards from what's implied to what's stated here, especially in verse 8, is that we have a job to do. So when Peter tells us in verse 8 that there is such a thing as an unfruitful or an ineffective believer, it begs the question of what then is our job as those whom God has chosen unto salvation? So by way of application, we need to consider this question here. What is our job? And perhaps more importantly, how are we doing in executing this job? So again, let's remember the thesis statement, if you will, or the key theme I want us to pull out of this. Our calling and election should result in godly living, resulting in an observable testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scene in Matthew chapter 28 is that of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been crucified. He has risen from the grave, but he has not yet ascended back to the Father. He has appeared to a select few and in what we often refer to as uh, the Great Commission, we get to eavesdrop on a private conversation between Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. And Jesus writes those familiar words that we know and love in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He said, And Jesus came came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are to be seen as marching orders, marching orders to the disciples 
and by extension us as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ to execute Jesus' desire to see the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But this commission is not simply to be seen on the individual level, but it's to be seen on the corporate level. You've heard it taught from this pulpit that God's plan to make disciples and to see the advance of the gospel is the local church. Let me put that another way. The tool that God has planned and intended, intended and intends and will intend to use to see the spread of the gospel is the local church. So as the local church is formed with the gathering of sinners who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus into what the Bible refers to as a new covenant community, we, as a collective body of believers, have a job to do. As new covenant believers, we are to evangelize the lost. But more, more, um, more than merely evangelize the lost, we, as a church, corporately are to make disciples of Christ. We're to corporately display the gospel to an onlooking world. And yes, that happens by faithfully sitting under faithful expository teaching week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. But another important way that we present Christ is to display the gospel in how we interact and how we live out our Christian lives in the context of a local church. We read in John 13, 34 and 35, we've studied this not too long ago, but long enough ago that we need to be reminded. These are Jesus' words to the disciples when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's through the visible evidence of our love for one another shown in self-sacrificial acts toward one another that serve to meet the tangible needs of the other person that the gospel is put on display. When we're transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the evidence of that is acts of love toward one another, it shows that we're truly disciples of Christ. And this visible love for fellow disciples of Jesus, fellow believers... That's the same portrayal of the gospel that the watching world sees. Now, there's a twofold result of living out the gospel. On the one hand, our lives should serve to make the gospel attractive for the watching, unbelieving world. But also, a life lived to reflect the gospel serves as a reminder to one another of the work accomplished on our behalf at the cross. And it's used by God to disciple one another deeper into the gospel. That's why as a church, we should be concerned when we notice that someone is not attending church. Amen. We need to be concerned because they're they're not regularly exposing themselves 
to the primary tool used by God to remind each of us of the glories of the gospel. Namely, the regular gathering of the local church. And we, as a church, need to have our radar up for those who we would love to see back. And corporately, we have a responsibility to be willing to go, to go on a rescue mission, to reach out to them, and Lord Lord willing, bring them back. Now, we're going to fail. We're going to fail at, inevitably, at representing the gospel through how we live out our community with one another. And thank God for the cross when we do. But the general tenor of our lives as God's chosen children should be that of a a visible, gospel-portraying love for one another. You know, Peter elsewhere, in 1 Peter, writing to first century Christians who are experiencing suffering and persecution for following Jesus, gives this charge in regard to being a witness, a charge that they are to display Jesus to those who are persecuting them. In 1 Peter 2, um, got a few 1 Peter references here. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you, he says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A few verses later, in 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And again, a few few verses down in uh, 1 Peter 2.18, he's talking to servants who are in a a relationship with uh, uh, presumably unbelieving masters, treated unfairly by those masters. He says, uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then again in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he's reminding wives of their gospel testimony to their, uh, uh, implicit here would be their unbelieving husbands, by saying this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that every, or that even in, let me start that again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Now, I know First Peter deals more with uh, how, how we should live our lives to represent Christ, Christ in the face of persecution, But the truth still stands that how we live our lives will be seen by others and we ought to live and labor to strive and strive to live out our Christian lives in such a way as to make the gospel attractive to those who observe how we live. And in the case of our second Peter verses today, that's especially apparent when we live in such a way that displays self-sacrificial love toward one another. 2 Peter uh, 1.9 gives us a roadblock, if you will, to us faithfully executing our task of reflecting Jesus to others, and that's what Peter describes as blindness and or forgetfulness. 
the sense of gospel amnesia. We're quick to forget the sin that the sin debt that our rebellion deserves. And we fail to remember that our debt's been paid and forgiven through believing in Jesus. We forget that through no act of our own, we're given this blessing, but rather the gift of salvation is a result of God calling a believer into his grace. And one of the unfortunate byproducts of this nearsightedness is that we fail to love others. And therefore, we fail to display the gospel to onlookers and to each other. This is one of the reasons that we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. The Lord's table is God's ordained way that we as a church remember the sacrifice done on our behalf. Amen. So in verse 10, it may seem like Peter is teaching that the way we live our lives somehow secures our salvation. It's not true. This would undermine the doctrine of eternal security uh, that teaches that those whom God saves, God keeps for salvation, and that's entirely of his doing. John 10, 28, 29 tells us, I give them eternal life, Jesus says. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Peter's not teaching that living our lives um, a certain way, or by living our lives in a certain way, that we secure our salvation by using that phrase, uh, confirm, uh, confirm your calling in the election. Rather, he's teaching and urging us that, urging us to display our calling in the election. Display that our calling in election are genuine by living in such a way that the watching world can see it. He's not teaching a works-based righteousness. He's teaching that how we live our lives is a sense, in a sense, is confirmation of our election. And then finally, in verse 11, Peter gives us a um, keep your eyes on the prize mentality. And Peter knows that the Christian life is hard. He knows it's he knows that the Christian life is one mar- marked with obstacles and the charge to live a life displaying brotherly love toward one another can be difficult. That's why the list of Christian virtues from uh, verse 6 includes steadfastness. The truth of eternal security and sustaining grace for the believer would make it impossible for a genuine Christian to throw in the towel because God's the one who ultimately keeps a believer. However, we know that the Christian walk can be discouraging. We get overwhelmed by our recurring sin. We get overwhelmed by others' recurring sin. We get discouraged by um, unfruitful life. We can get worn down when it comes to striving to live a life pleasing to God, which is why it's all the more important to remember the promises of God, which are ours in Christ, verse 4, we need to remember that those promises are, are ironclad. And in the case of verse 11, we're reminded of this great promise. For in this way, with diligence and steadfastness, for in this way, 
there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me just conclude. I want to bring us back to where, um, to what Peter gives us for our consideration in these opening verses of Second Peter. Our calling and election, which are gifts from God, not only involve the secure future promise of an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we read in verse 11, but our calling and election have a, have a here and now component that involves living a life of, of, of virtue, and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. To the degree that we conform, excuse me, confirm, to the degree that we confirm our calling and election in how we live our lives is the degree to which we make observable the gospel of Jesus Christ to onlookers as well as reminding each of us of the gospel, both individually and as a church. So I would ask that you bow your heads as we close in prayer. Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, may refresh and rekindle our love for Jesus and our love for the gospel. Father, if we have fallen into a sense of complacency in how we, in regard to how we're, uh, we portray the gospel, in terms of how we're living it, our lives out in a local church, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you remind us of how you forgave us to the end of making us zealous for good works. May we live in such a way that we represent the gospel to those who observe us and that Jesus may appear attractive. We ask that you use us to reach the lost. We desire that you receive the glory. Amen.